when Ashley and I got married, we first lived in a tiny little basement in Queens, and half of that basement was actually used for someone's hair removal business. So a lot of times in the mornings, we would wake up to the sound of ladies talking on the other side of a door where they were having some kind of a mystery laser hair removal procedure done. Uh, not long after we were married, we bumped into some people that I know and that I deeply respect who live in another country. Uh, they were missionaries who were serving the Lord overseas, but they were going to be in town in New York for a couple of days, and we just happened to, to have contact with them, and they said, could we pop over and just spend a little time with you this evening? And Ashley and I kind of looked at each other with this uh, knowing look, because we had just recently moved in. I don't even think that we had a dresser yet. We did not have a bookshelf. We did not have a computer desk. We didn't really have much in the world. And so all of our stuff was just kind of everywhere in the house. So when they asked if we could, they could come over, we said, yes, but let us go there first. Let us get there and let's just kind of clean up a little bit before you come. And so we got there and worked like a reverse tornado to get everything tucked away out of you, like shoving stuff into suitcases and under our bed and just trying to hide everything that didn't look clean and neat because I really respected these folks and I didn't want them to think that we were slobs. Now, just to be clear, Ashley is a brilliant organizer and she does a good job of keeping me from being too messy, but there was not much we could do in this instance. And we did our best. We recently finished our journey through the book of Acts the next book that we're going to go through is the book of 1 Samuel. However, before we begin uh, our way through 1 Samuel, we're first going to take a couple of months to explore a few other places in the Bible and just land there for a week or a couple of weeks at a time. To begin, the next three sermons that you are going to hear, including this one, are going to be coming from one psalm, from Psalm 139. If you have your Bibles open to Psalm 139, I would encourage you to follow along with me as we hear the word of the Lord. This is God's word for you today. This is a psalm of David, and he writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And that's where we're going to stop in the psalm today. Join me as I pray and ask the blessing of the Lord over the word. Father God, I, I pray today that as we come to this scripture we would be enamored by your word, not just by the poetry or the symmetry or the beauty of it, but that we would be enraptured by you for these words describe and define and clarify and reveal you to us. And so, Father God, I pray that today as we approach your word, that you would allow us by your Holy Spirit to understand and to receive and to apply what we hear. We pray that in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. What comes to mind when you think about God? If somebody just mentions the name of God, what comes into your brain? A.W. Tozer famously once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A little later on in the same book, just about a paragraph later, he writes, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, 
but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. How you understand God matters. It matters not only to the rest of your understanding of eternal matters, but to every single matter of the human experience. The mundane tasks, the habits that you carry out without a thought, the aspirations and goals that you set for yourself, the relationships that you keep, the way that you view yourself, and literally everything else in the entire human experience hinges on what you believe to be true about God. Imagine for a moment an adult person, somebody that you don't know, Imagine a person who has never learned basic mathematics. They've never learned to add or subtract. In fact, they can only count to 10 because that's where their fingers run out. Maybe if they're not wearing shoes, they can get to 20. Now imagine that very same person being placed into a class at Harvard University called Applied Calculus and Complex Vector Systems. Now how far is that person going to get? How much are they actually going to understand? Everything that they attempt to do will be necessarily flawed because they don't have the necessary building blocks to understand. Now this, in this overly simplistic and flawed illustration, God is like basic mathematics. Not in the sense that understanding God is simple or easy, but it is to say that having a basic comprehension about the nature of God is absolutely foundational. Knowing and understanding God is the only way to make sense of anything else and everything else. He is the foundational base of all knowledge and truth. Knowing God is an incredibly precious gift. I love how Thomas Watson says this in his book, Body of Divinity. He says, to have the knowledge of the true God is more than if we had mines of gold, rocks of diamonds, islands of spices, especially if God has savingly revealed himself to us. If he has given us eyes to see the light, if we so know God as to be known of him, to love him and believe in him. We can never be thankful enough to God that he has hid the knowledge of himself from the wise and prudent of the world and revealed it unto us. Knowing God is at the center of what people are designed to do. Knowing God is the central tenet of our ultimate hope. Listen to how Jesus describes eternal life in John 17, 3. How would you describe what eternal life is? This is how Jesus does. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life equals knowing God, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. What is the glory of mankind? What are we to glory in? Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 through 24 says this, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For I, in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, I was just reading to you from the New King James Version. Perhaps you're used to another version that doesn't use the word glory and that rather uses the word boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's really interesting about these verses is that in Hebrew, the word that is used here is not the one that is typically used for boast, 
nor is it the one that is typically used for glory. It's actually the word that literally translates into English as shine. Let him who shines, shines that he knows and understands me. The concept is not a boast in the sense of bragging, nor is it glorying in the sense of self-glorification. It is boasting in the sense that we are radiating a message about God's glory. We are not shining in the sense that we are saying, look what I have done. We are doing the opposite. We are shining and saying, look what he has done. God says that all of your achievements, all of your possessions, if that is what you are displaying and revealing to the world, you're missing the point. There is one thing and one thing alone that we should be radiating and shining out with our lives. Look at this, we should say. Let me show you, we should say. Let me display to you the goodness of God himself. It is that we understand and know God. That is what we should display, meaning that we have intimate fellowship with him. That word know does not mean intellectual awareness. It means a relationship. Imagine for a moment a beggar child living centuries ago, and this child was orphaned and left on the streets for dead. This child could do nothing but sit at the city gates and hope that each day somebody would throw a penny or throw a little piece of bread to them that they might eat. And then one day, while the child was laying on the ground near to starvation, the king comes through the gates. And the king descends from his horse, picks up the child, and takes the child into the palace. And then the king gives him the best possible treatment, the best medical care, the best meals, the best clothes. And the king officially adopts the child and makes the child a prince and an heir. Now imagine A year later, that same child walks back to where all of those other beggars are at the gate, still wasting away, and just by looking at the child, everyone sees them and sees there's something different. There is a radiating reality that has changed about this child. Let me ask you, what if someone were to ask, where did you get those clothes? I can see your face looks different. You're fuller. You're not starving. Where did you get the food? Is it arrogant for the child to say, I know the king? Of course not. That's not some kind of arrogant name drop situation. It's a delighted, befuddled, joy-filled exuberance that the king for some reason decided to display love and compassion and mercy. Similarly, when we shine or we boast or we glory in knowing the God of the universe, it is the opposite of pride. It is simply beaming with awe that God would permit someone like me to get close enough to have a relationship with him. Now, perhaps you've noticed something in, this, in that illustration, and th- that is something even more, that there is something even more significant than knowing God, and that is being known by God. Earlier, I gave you that quote from Tozer. It's one that I've quoted before. You've probably heard it before. But here is how C.S. Lewis responded to those words right after they were written. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. Well, by God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, 
to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his sons, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. It matters how God sees us. As I preach through Psalm 131 over the next few Sundays, we are going to be considering three attributes of God. His omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. Meaning that God knows everything, he is everywhere, and he is all-powerful. Today we're only going to be looking at the first of those, which is the omniscience of God. That he knows everything. The Bible clearly teaches about God's omniscience. And one of my favorite examples is from Psalm 147, verse 5, which says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, what I want to do for you here in a second is I want to show you on the screen the literal Hebrew rendering. I don't think I've ever done this before on a Sunday morning or even a Wednesday night to show you the breakdown of the Hebrew. But this one is so important. I want you to see the actual wording of this phrase. Let me read it to you again in English and then let's look at it in Hebrew. It says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. If that is all we said, we should say, wow, be in awe, be amazed. Look at how Hebrew presents this for us. Now, This is Hebrew, so it reads the opposite direction of our language from right to left. At the top, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite, infinite. Do you see that? In Hebrew, if you want to say something is big, they don't have words like big, bigger, biggest. They don't have the word very. They just put the word twice. And here he says, how big is God's understanding? It is infinite. If you just say that by itself, it means nothing lacking. Infinite, infinite. It is so infinite, it is incomprehensibly infinite. It is a beautiful thing. I love this verse. God's omniscience is unsearchable. Romans chapter 11, verse 34, we're going to sing that later today, asks the rhetorical question, for who has known the mind of our Lord or who has been his counselor? The obvious answer that Paul is implying is no one. You cannot. God cannot learn anything. He cannot forget anything. He cannot be informed of anything. He cannot overlook anything. He has never been shocked or confused or uncertain. He has never said, wow, or Huh? Or, whoa. God has never said anything like that. There is no information, no data, no detail of which God does not have perfect and thorough comprehension. God knows everything about everything. And everything that ever was, and everything that is, and everything that ever will be. God knows. It is good for us to meditate upon the infinite knowledge of God that it is infinite, infinite. However, as we make our way through Psalm 139, we are going to be considering how these three attributes of God don't just exist, but how they intersect with you specifically. 
In this psalm, David is displaying the personal manner in which the infinite God of the universe relates directly to finite man. This is where the divine attribute of omniscience intersects with your life. It is not just that God knows everything. It's that he knows you. He knows everything about you. This is personal. So if you still have Psalm 139 open on your lap, let's see what the Bible teaches us about experiencing experiencing God's omniscience. Verse 1, he writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. One of the most challenging things for people to do is to be vulnerable. Even the toughest and strongest of men are often fearful to reveal what's going on in the depths of their heart. Most people have a hard time opening up. We don't trust others easily, and we don't speak about our deepest fears and our greatest failures openly. We are not quick to share the ways that we have been most hurt or the ways that we have most hurt other people. We hide those things, but you can't hide them from God. Notice the verbs here are in past tense. You have searched me and known me. This is not a theoretical possibility that God has the ability to inspect your heart. He has already ascended to observe the lofty heights of your highest thoughts. And he has descended into the depths of your depravity to examine the deepest of your temptations. He has searched you. He has known you. David continues in verse 1 to amplify the pattern of God's personal love as it tracks through our lives by writing, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Whether I'm active or passive, God, you're paying attention. David adds, you discern my thoughts from afar. God does not have to discuss anything with you in order to know your mind. You don't have to lay on his couch like he's some kind of cosmic psychiatrist and share your deepest heart thoughts with him in order for him to see them or know them. Whether you ever see him or not, he sees you and knows you. Verse 3, you have searched out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. I'm just going to assume for the majority of people in this room that you have seen the movies or read the books of J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece series, The Lord of the Rings. One of the most terrifying villains in all of literature is the Eye of Sauron. It's a giant eye on top of a tower that is constantly looking all across the world in search of the One Ring. And if it looks at you and it sees you, it sees right through you. And in some mysterious way, it entices you to evil and it drains the energy from you. It's a terrifying thought that there is someone from a distance that you cannot see whose eye can see you, that is constantly searching for you. But if you really think about it, that's a pretty silly bad guy. I mean, it's an eyeball on a building, meaning it can only look in one direction at a time. And in the movies, the hobbits just hide behind some rocks and it can't see them. Or at the conclusion of the trilogy, Frodo's friends storm the Black Gate. Why? So they can draw the eye's attention away from Frodo and Sam as they climb that final mountain. I'm sorry if I spoiled the movie for you. You've had 20 years to see it. First of all, thankfully, God is not a villain. That's good news. But 
Considering his omniscience, you need to understand God is not like that eye. He does not get distracted. There is no diversion that would ever turn his gaze away from your soul. His eye does not leave you. Moreover, you cannot simply hide behind the rocks. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 verse 16 tells us at the end, there will be people who wish that the rocks would give them cover. It says that they will call out to the mountains and the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Hide us from the face. Hide us from his sight. Hide us from view. God is perfectly familiar with your paths. Even when you are sleeping and unaware of anything beyond your own dreams, God is acquainted with them as well. David said, you search out my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He continues, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Have you ever wanted to say something unkind, but then wisely you chose to bite your tongue? There's some kind of wicked thought that's in your heart that you were able to keep from escaping your lips. God saw that thought. Even before the word reached your tongue, the churnings of your imaginations are a theater for God's viewing. He knows them. David goes even further to say, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, this first part of this verse, the phrase is, I find incredibly interesting. Normally, you would probably associate the word hem with clothing, with like a garment. And the hem is where everything is at the edges, where it's sewed very thickly. And it's done that way so that it doesn't unravel. That's how I normally think of the word hem. Maybe you do too. However, that is not what is being said here. Remember who's writing this psalm? David. What is David? David is a warrior king. He was a brilliant military tactician. This term that he is using is not the word for the hem of a garment. It is battleground terminology. The word hem here is almost always translated as besieged in the Old Testament. Do you know what a besiegement is? It's when an army would go to a city And they would set up camp outside of the walls, usually right outside of the city gates, just far enough that archers could not kill you. And then they would set up there. They would, if there's a water flowing in, like a river flowing into the city, they'd stop that up. They would stop any kind of food from going into the city. They'd burn all the crops right around the outside. They would just make sure that nobody, nobody was going to get in and that nobody, absolutely nobody was going to get out with their life intact. That's what a besiegement is. And eventually what generally happens is the people begin starving and they get so bothered by the fact that they are, they are now so hungry they've already eaten their shoes. And in some cases in the Bible, it says that they got so far they were beginning to eat their own children that what they would do is they would cry out to their own king, their own leader, and they would say, please surrender. And if the king didn't, they would sometimes throw the king over the walls. And then they would say, invaders, please come. It would be better for us if you take us over than if the king remains in power. That's a besiegement. That's what David is speaking about here. Of the 36 occurrences of the word that we see here for him, 22 of them are translated besieged. It is also translated in the Old Testament as enclosed or harassed or encircled or bound up. It is never once used to describe sewing or clothing. It is always about surrounding and blocking entrances and exits. David is describing this here. He's saying of God's mind, 
Your mind besieges mine in front and behind. In other words, there is nowhere for my stray thoughts to run from you. There is no such thing as the privacy of my own mind. God knows. Look at verse 5 again and consider the last part of the sentence. Quote, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Roughly three to five times a week, one of my children will come in with their hands cupped like this. And they'll walk into the kitchen and they'll say, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad. And there's always something there. So a lot of times it's alive and it's a critter of some sort, bugs or small animals. That's what's being displayed here. Not that he lays your hand, his hand upon us like he, you, know, you might put a hand on someone's shoulder or that you might pray for someone. It's literally the word for you cup your hand over me. Like if there was a spider walking across the table and you cup your hand over it. Now remember that this is being spoken about in relationship to our minds and our thoughts. He's saying my thoughts are like that. They are imprisoned within the cup of your hand. There is no way they can escape. And when you parallel that with what is being said about the besiegement, it is saying that all of your thoughts are captured and cupped in his hand, just like Athanasius might hold a lightning bug. If this makes you feel small, if this makes you realize your finitude, then you are in good company. That is exactly how David felt, and that is exactly how he responded in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There are occasions when we know or feel something about God, but human language is just not expansive enough to describe it or to define it. But that's not what this is saying. It is not saying that it's just too big for me to explain or to verbalize. It is saying that our minds are actually too small to comprehend the mind of God. We are incapable of understanding that his awareness of our thoughts are even more thorough than our thoughts of ourselves. Let me ask you, how do you feel about this? Hearing that God knows everything about you, including everything that you think, how do you feel about that? What emotion does that stir in you when you hear that God knows all of your thoughts? There are distinct ways that people respond. They rebel or they rejoice. Sometimes they experience triumph or they experience terror. For an unbeliever who becomes aware of God's perfect knowledge and realize that their sin is on display constantly before him, it produces fear because they realize there is no place I can hide. Their guilt has been uncovered. It has been known. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, 13. Friend, if you have joined us this morning, but you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know that God is a perfect judge with perfect information. There is no hiding evidence in his courtroom. He knows all about your imperfect deeds and every one of your sins is going to stand against you at the judgment. There is no time to rush home and to clean up your room before God comes over. You can't just shove everything into a drawer and hide it away. God was aware of your sin before you were. 
If anyone else in the universe other than the Lord knew all of your deepest thoughts and all of your sins, or even just a small portion of the temptations that you have entertained in your mind, they would reject you. But God, being rich in mercy, knows every one of your sins, yet chooses to set his affection upon sinners. He is ceaselessly aware of every one of your failures. Even so, he sent Jesus to die for them. Jesus was fully aware of what he was getting into when Christ died for the ungodly. Even while we were yet sinners. He is a good and loving God who is not only familiar with your sin, but who has done everything necessary to save you from it. Friend, if you have not yet come to Jesus Christ for salvation, trust that Jesus knowingly died for your sins, that he bore them intentionally on the cross to pay for them, and he completely eliminated the record of debt that stood against you. Believe that he is alive right now and he lives to be your savior. Trust in him and you will be saved. And for those of you who do know Christ, I want to offer you four foundational applications to close out. First, ask God to reveal hidden sin. Notice how David finishes this psalm in verses 23 through 24. He addresses the very same God that he has already said has searched him and known everything about him past tense. It is to that God that David then cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you are honest with yourself, then you would admit that you are terrible at self-evaluation. You tolerate thoughts and words and actions in your own life that you would rapidly call out or look down upon in others. You excuse sin and you justify sin and you forget sin and you overlook sin. We are all masters of self-deception. We need the light of God to illuminate the dark corners of our hearts so that we can identify where we are falling short. If you were to see yourself As God sees you, even for a moment, there are two things that would immediately overwhelm you. First, you would be so disturbed by the depths of your depravity that you would condemn yourself immediately as being worthy of an eternity in hell. Secondly, if you were to see yourself as God sees you, you would be so overwhelmed with awe that the uncontainable, unending, and unbreakable love of God has been set upon a sinner like you. You would be unable to communicate because of how incredible God's love is, even though he knows you. David prayed a dangerous prayer in these verses. It was dangerous to his comfort, dangerous to his self-image, and dangerous to his sin. He asked God to make him aware of sin so that it might be immediately eliminated. Are you prepared to ask the Lord to reveal every single aspect of your life where you do not look like Jesus Christ? That's the kind of prayer that the Psalms are teaching us to pray. Ask God to reveal your sin so that you might put it to death. Application number two, repent. When sin is revealed to you, how do you respond? It can be revealed in a number of ways, sometimes through internal conviction and sometimes through external approaches. For example, sometimes David or God will use a person like he did in David's life when the prophet Nathan came and pointed his finger right in his face and said, you are the man. Sometimes someone will come to you and say, you are the man. But what happens next after you realize that there is sin in your life, what happens next matters. Thomas Watson speaks about it this way in his incredible book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He says, many would rather have their sins covered than cured. 
They do with their sins as with their pictures, draw a curtain over them, or as some do with their illegitimate children, smother them. But though men will have no tongue to confess, God hath an eye to see. He will unmask their treason. Those iniquities which men hide in their hearts shall be written one day on their forehead as with the point of a diamond. They who would not confess sin as David, that they might be pardoned, shall confess sin as Achan, that they might be stoned. Tis dangerous to keep the devil's counsel. He that covers his sin shall not prosper." When God reveals your sin to you, confess it, turn away from it, and if you find a sin, you kill it. Application number three, live coram Deo, which means just a fancy Latin way of saying live before the face of God. A couple years ago, I was looking at a top 100 love songs of all time. I tried to find this list again. Maybe it was top 100 wedding songs, whatever it was. I was looking through this list of top 100 songs that are about love. I was very surprised to see that near the top of the list was the 1983 song by the police called Every Breath You Take. Now, I'm sure that you know this song because in 2019, the performance rights company called Broadcast Broadcast Music Incorporated declared this to be the most played song in radio history. Did you know that? I'm sure you've heard it. Here are some of the lyrics of this love song. (laughs) Every breath you take and every move you make Every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Every single day and every word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. Can't you see? You belong to me. How my poor heart aches with every step you take. Because every move you make and every vow you break and every smile you fake and every claim you stake, I'll be watching you. That is not a love song. That is like a rough draft for a cease and desist letter. (laughs) I'm sure you get his point, though. Sting wrote this song so that he could try to get his girlfriend to stop cheating on him. Uh, Side note, they broke up. But he says, I'm going to be watching every move you make. I'm going to watch everything that you're doing. So the point he's making is, because I'm watching, you should act properly. Because I'm watching, you should be faithful. We all act differently under supervision. The point is that you are always under supervision. David is desirous that the Lord would lead him in the way everlasting. Walking in the way everlasting looks like walking with an ever-increasing awareness of God's lovingly omniscient eye in your life. Psalm, uh, Psalm 89, 15 puts it like this. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Notice the last part. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. First John 1, 5 through 7 expounds on this idea by saying, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light. Walk before the face of God. Do everything that you do under the gracious light of his supervision. Application number four, delight in the fact that God has not only chosen to know about you, but that he has chosen to know you. 
He has graciously initiated a relationship with you. He has not seen your vast sins and rejected you. He has loved you far more than you can calculate. I know that I have given you a number of long quotes this morning, but let me close this sermon with just one more. J.I. Packer says this in his magnum opus book called Knowing God. He writes, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Brothers and sisters, as believers, we experience the omniscience of God as a delight. God knows you, and in knowing you, he loves you. Let's pray. Our, our Father in heaven, I pray that as we hear these words, our view of you will be magnified and increased for, Lord, we often narrow our perspective of you and consider you to be altogether like us. But you are not altogether like us. You are greater than we can imagine. So, Father God, I pray that today that you would use the words that have been preached and the scripture that we have considered and that you would cause our view of you to be accurately expanded, that we might understand more of your glory and that we might be convicted and transformed. Father God, we pray that as we continue making our way through Psalm 139, you would reveal to us your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.